So like Seth had mentioned, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and we do it, we've done it in these little mini-series. So uh, we, worked, we worked through Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and, and two weeks ago, we started Joseph. Uh, if you were here last week, we had that awkward commercial break. Uh, if you missed last week's message, uh, I really highly, like I mentioned earlier, Kyle shared some of his next step stories. I've had conversations with a number of you. It's one worth going back and listening to again. Uh, but this week, we pick back up again with Joseph. So uh, just <clears throat> kind, of, we, kind of reminding us where we were in the story of Joseph. Um, is, uh, Joseph is, is, is born. He is the favorite son uh, of Jacob, uh, and Jacob shows a ton of favoritism in that space. Uh, and so where we left Joseph last, he had been thrown into a pit, but then sold into slavery in Egypt. Before we jump back into the story, though, I wanted to... Um, I, I wanted to talk about something else first. On a recommendation of my good friend Wally from Walker Harbor, also I think a number of you have recommended it as well, um, this week I sat down and watched the Netflix documentary Quarterbacks. Have anybody, we got a picture of it. Anybody seen that documentary? Few of you have. Nobody has. Whoa. For, that's crazy. So, oh, a couple people have. It's really good. It's interesting. It's uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a documentary that follows around three different quarterbacks, the three of them right there. Uh, and I, I wanted to watch it, one, because of the number of recommendations I got for it, but two, one of the quarterbacks that they followed um, is somebody that I, I can't help but root for, uh, partly because um, uh, two of my cousins um, played with him in high school. So he, he's local, came from this particular area, and two of my cousins were, were wide receivers at Holland Christian and played with uh, this particular guy. Uh, and so that's interesting. Allegedly, he went to college after that. I, there's no record of it at all, so we don't know. Uh, and then he weirdly popped up in the pros uh, and did an okay job. So he's, he's, a guy, he's the kind of guy, though, that uh, not only makes $33 million a year, but also looks like he shops at Kohl's. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. If we can go to the next slide there. Right? Uh, that is one of my favorite tweets of all time, right? You can't read what it says, right? Just know this dude is rolling in Cole's cash, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. What is that shirt? Uh, yeah, $33 million a year, and that's what he's got, right? So uh, <clears throat> even if you don't know this quarterback from football, you might recognize his amazing acting in Makatawa Bank commercials, right? Maybe you've seen some of those, right? Remember that move? With the sunglasses, it was great. Uh, obviously, we're talking about Kirk Cousins, right? So maybe you know uh, him. He was the quarterback at Holland Christian. Again, we don't know where he went to college at all. Uh, then popped up, popped up in the pros, uh, and now is a professional quarterback. If we can go to the next slide, Carter, that'd be great. So Kirk Cousins here, and then if we can go even to the next one here, uh, this picture of him and his family. Now the, now, the Netflix documentary follows three different quarterbacks. So it, one is Patrick Mahomes. Maybe you've heard about him. He's okay at football, I guess. Um, right? Uh, it kind of follows his journey through the, his Super Bowl run last year. Uh, it also far, follows a guy uh, named Marcus Mariota, who played for the Falcons for most of the year, uh, and kind of his journey through there. And then, finally, uh, it, it, it focuses on Kirk Cousins and his family. A quarterback who falls squarely between the other two. If Marcus Mariota is struggling to find his space and Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes, Kirk kind of falls in that middle space. He's obviously very good. He's been to four Pro Bowls, which is great. Uh, has an extremely high completion percentage. 
Uh, he's even won the division a few times, though not this year, right? AJ and I have drank a lot of the blue Kool-Aid, so we know that this year will not be a division title because of the Lions, right? Yes, there we go, Dave. Dave's wearing a Lions shirt right there. I, I, was, uh, I was talking to AJ earlier this week um, and realized that the Lions have set us up for one of two things. It's going to be brilliant either way. Either we get to experience a playoff win for the first time in my lifetime, which is insane, or they've set us up for the greatest Lions lioning of all time, right? If they stink, you got to give them the tip of the cap going, I see it, guys. It's the same thing again. You're so good at it. So either way, it'll be epic, right? I'm all over the place. All right. There's a reason that I really wanted to watch this documentary, though. There's something that caught my attention as I watched each of these quarterbacks go through their routines. The series focuses on all three men, all of whom are elite athletes in their field. All of them are deeply competitive, disciplined. They're hard workers. But when you watch the documentary, you realize that Kurt is a little bit different. Now, he is a normal person, and I'm sure that he has a lot of faults and, and, and opinions and all different things that you, may not, uh, that you may like or dislike or you may like him as a quarterback or not. None of that actually matters, but there was something that was really inspiring to me as I watched the way that he prepares for each week. Like, the doc, like I said, the documentary follows each quarterback as they struggle through the roller coaster of a season, uh, the thrill of close victories, the agony of defeats, the ups and downs of everything the NFL season has to throw at you. And when you watch Kurt go through it, what you see is somebody who's just so steady. He's uber competitive for sure, but win or lose, he drives home with his wife. He's, pre he's, he's a present father to his boys. He reads to them. He tucks them in. He's gentle with his family. Even though three hours earlier, there were 300-pound men trying to flatten him, he'll then be sitting there with his son uh, and reading to him at night. His routine, his preparation, his leadership, his post-game are all shaped by his character. One of the things that I thought was fascinating about him in this particular documentary was that he takes a Sabbath day. It's Tuesday. So he's, he had to actually work it out with his coaches to say, Tuesday, I will do nothing related to football at all during the season. Just takes the day off, spends it with his family, uh, reconnects into that particular way, or reconnects with them in that particular way. One of the, there was another scene that I watched uh, just last night, or two, two nights ago, uh, that, was, uh, that was also really fascinating to me, just showing the depth of character. Last season, the, the Minnesota Vikings, which is the team that Kurt plays for, um, accomplished a feat that had never happened in the NFL before. Uh, they were down to the Indianapolis Colts by 33 at halftime. It was 33-0 at halftime. Uh, up until that particular point, the greatest NFL comeback ever had been 32 points, until... Last year, the Vikings ended up coming back and winning that game. Kurt had just led a game-winning drive to win in overtime to set the new record for the greatest comeback of all time. And what struck me is in the midst of that space, where obviously everybody is elated, he realizes he wants to go back out to the field to grab his son, which he does. So his son is probably eight-ish, that would be my guess. And, uh, and, and so you've got this, this, this professional quarterback who's just accomplished... Uh, something that's never happened in the NFL before, making a plate of food, putting strawberries on a plate for his son in the midst of it all. Uh, it was just striking to me. 
Again, I know he's, probably, he's a normal person. He's, he has flaws like everyone does. But at least in this documentary, and like I said, my cousins have played with him, cousins. My cousins have played with Kirk Cousins. Uh, the, he seems, he appears to be uh, a man of character, a down-to-earth kind of dork who would make $33 million a year shop at Kohl's, right? Uh, rooted in deep Christian character, right? As a result, you can see it in the documentary, his coaches, teammates, they admire him, they follow him, and, they, and it's hard not to root for him as a quarterback and a person. As a model of consistent character and stability. Which leads us to our story today. A couple weeks ago, like I said, we, we, we started the story of a man named Joseph, Jacob, who is one of Jacob's 12 sons from his favorite wife, Rachel. And like we mentioned, uh, Jacob does not show all of his sons the same amount of affection. He clearly has a favorite, and for him, that's Joseph. Maybe you've heard he gave him a colorful coat or a well-ornamented coat, just a, something that helped people see, this is my favorite. Two weeks ago, we saw that Joseph didn't handle that favoritism the best way. He kind of flaunted it in the face of his brothers, and as a result then, his brothers hated him for it, had a really hard time with him. And so they ended up selling him into slavery and telling Jacob that Joseph had died. That's where we pick up our story today, in Genesis 39, verse 1, which says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now I want to pause there for just a second so that we can notice a few details here. The first thing that we notice is that in these first two verses, there's a phrase or a word that's repeated three different times. Joseph had been taken to Egypt, to the house of Potiphar, who is an Egyptian, and then he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So way back, we talked about one of the things that to always pay attention to when you're reading the Bible is that if there's a repeated word in a short amount of time or phrase, there's probably some importance to it. It's probably something that's trying to catch your attention, and that's what we have here too. There probably are a few reasons why they repeat the word Egyptian so many times here. First, is because in the ancient world, we talk about this all the time, gods are territorial. Uh, God, in the, in the scriptures, continually says that he's not, but if you lived in any other culture in the ancient world, gods lived in locations. So the gods of Egypt are the most powerful in Egypt. The gods of Canaan also exist. Neither of them would debate each other on that, but the gods of Egypt are powerful in Egypt. The gods of Canaan are powerful in Canaan. So in that mindset, then, if you're leaving the place where you've met God and going to a different country, you're going into the home of different gods. And so that's helping us know that we're in that space. But there's probably a second reason as well. And we saw it back in Genesis 15, when God is speaking to Abraham. He says, Then the Lord said to him, this is to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that is not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. See, the author wants us to know that we're not in Canaan, that we're not in the promised land. It's setting the stage for the entire next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, which is the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. 
And then the third thing that we see in this passage is that the author wants us to know that this isn't a surprise to God. This is something he knew was going to happen already. We've been reading through Genesis. What we've seen time and time again is that the Bible doesn't shy away from reality. We saw it last week, real-life stories from real-life people not sugar-coated in any way. And so God tells the Israelites, you're going to live in another country. You're going to be enslaved and mistreated there. That's going to come. And it doesn't shy away from that fact. Actually, Eugene Peterson says it in this way. No literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. It's from the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. What we saw last week, what we're going to see again this week, is that the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that we're going to have struggles in our lives. In the first few verses of this chapter, it's saying, you aren't in Canaan, you are in a different place in which they believe their gods are powerful there. You're not inside the promised land. And actually, this is the beginning of the thing we talked to Abraham about, in which you're going to be strangers in a foreign land and eventually be mistreated there. See, it's important for us to read these parts of the Bible as they are. We tend to read, we tend to read quickly over some of these stories, which then they lose something profound. Joseph has gone from a favorite child with a colorful coat to now the servant of an Egyptian. He's a slave, he's a foreigner, and that has to be difficult for him. And while he's there, he learns some really important lessons as well. So I want to encourage you to try to put yourself into Joseph's shoes here. Not like the way you did back when you were uh, in kids, like when you were in kids' ministry, where we move really quickly to what happens eventually, which is going to be positive for Joseph. But put yourself in his shoes right now. Remember back to the beginning of our story on Joseph. He was the favorite. He really didn't have any problem being the favorite. He even flaunted it. But now he's going to learn an important lesson because he's in Egypt as a slave. He's the first lesson he's going to learn is one of humility, which we see in the next part of the story here. Genesis 39.2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and, the Lord, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and trusted him into his care everything he owned. From, that, from, the, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the house, household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had because, the house, because in, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were going to talk about Joseph learning humility. This doesn't sound like a place where he needs to learn humility. He's doing really well. And at this point, he is. But did you catch the why? Why is he doing well? We had just talked about whenever you see something repeated more often than maybe it should, it's something we want to pay attention to, and we have that here again. Five times in five verses, something is repeated. Who is with Joseph? Who gave him success? Who blessed the household? You see, the author is making it very clear here. Joseph is succeeding, sure, but not because of his skill or his smarts 
or his ex- exceptional hard work. He, the Bible is clear and repeats it often. He's succeeding because God is working. The Lord blessed the household. The Lord blessed Joseph's work. The Lord made everything he did successful. It's an important thing to notice here, that, that he is succeeding, but he's, not, he's doing it because God is with him and moving in that way. Let's keep going. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the household. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So apparently, Joseph does have one thing going for him on his own accord. Apparently, the dude's jacked and handsome, right? I don't know. That's what the Bible says, right? Well built and good looking. Um, You know, it'd be nice for all of us to be described that way, wouldn't it? I love that description. But, uh, But Joseph is serving in Potiphar's house, and God is blessing him. And the first attribute that we actually see is him is one that's going to get him in trouble. Guaranteed, it's not, or granted, it's not his fault, but still. See, Potiphar's wife sees Joseph working around the house, and she likes what she sees. And so she propositions him. And actually, she's obviously very explicit about it. There's no subtlety to what she's asking for here. Joseph hears that proposition, and he refuses. And even the why of why he refuses is important, because he, he says, I, I can't do this, not because I'd be sinning against Potiphar. No, he understands he'd be sinning against God. He'd be doing the wrong thing. That is not the way that he's, he's been called to live his life. We see, a Joseph, we see Joseph exhibit character and integrity here, which as we've been working our way through Genesis, we haven't seen all that often. So this is refreshing. Somebody actually does the right thing for once. Now, I want to just stop here for a second. Now, I'm sure some of you know where this story goes from here. If you do, I want you to pretend like you don't for a second. If you don't, you're in a good position. You don't have to pretend at all. But what we have here is we have someone who has been mistreated by his brothers in Joseph. As a result, he's found himself in a terrible situation. He's remained steady and faithful to God through the whole ordeal, and as a result, God blesses the family he's working for. Someone in that family tries to tempt Joseph into doing something he shouldn't, and he resists that temptation and does the right thing. Question I want to ask you then is if you don't, or if you're forgetting that you know the rest of the story, what should happen next? If you were going to tell that story, what would you expect to happen next? Somebody has been put in a terrible situation and consistently shown character and done the right thing. If this was a made for TV Christian movie, what would happen here? What if you're watching a televangelist, right? What happens then? See, if we followed, for instance, like a prosperity gospel, Joseph would be vindicated here. He would be cheered and celebrated. He would immediately become a hero of faith and elevated to the highest position. 
In this particular space, based on some of our understandings of how we think God should work, if you do the right things in these bad situations, you should then flourish in everything that you do. You should be blessed, and it should be easy from here on out. But let's see what actually happens. Verse 11. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her husband's servants. Look, she said to him, them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until, her master came, until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us uh, came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, say, <clears throat> when, the master, when the master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Story takes a nasty turn, doesn't it? Joseph very quickly is reminded of his place. Potiphar's wife, right, she, she puts him down into his place immediately. Sorry, my shoe's untied, and I was worried I was going to trip over it. Potiphar's wife reminds him of his place. She even uses his nationality in a derogatory way. This Hebrew, this servant, this less than person of, uh, of ours has mistreated me. The one that you gave to me. He is, it's clear in this interaction that Joseph does not hold the same kind of value in their eyes as they do for each other. He's a foreigner. He's a slave. Even though he was put in charge of the household, he still needed to be reminded what his value is. See, Joseph has no recourse here. He's a non-Egyptian, so he has nothing. He's innocent, but it doesn't matter. He's going to go to jail. And very likely, he's never getting out. Joseph, when he's put in jail, has to expect that he will die there. Joseph is forced into a posture of humility. He's no longer the favorite son of his father. He's just a slave, just a Hebrew in an Egyptian house. Through this story, we see Joseph learn humility, which actually leads us to the second virtue that Joseph learns as well, which is patience. The story goes on, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in, held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, some translations actually begin this section by saying, Joseph remained in prison, which communicates to us two different things. First, communicates that he was there a while. This isn't a short visit. 
It's easy to read over it quickly and assume that the story that we'll see next happens very quickly. But no, he has to spend a significant amount of time in that jail. And second, in the Hebrew, it suggests that he has no expectation of getting out. It's actually included in the language. We also see that he's there long enough to create a relationship with the jailer, strong enough one for him to be put in charge of the rest of the prisoners. We see Joseph may be down and out, but he's not alone. The Bible's clear that God is with him in there. But I still can't imagine what Joseph must be going through. He did everything right in Potiphar's household, and now he finds himself assuming he's going to die in jail. Sure, he's succeeding there again, but I can imagine the kind of wrestling, similar to what Seth was talking about earlier, that he has to be doing with God. I know I would be frustrated in that space. I'm not sure I could remain faithful in the way that we see him remain faithful there. I'd be like, what the heck? I did what I was supposed to do. Why is this happening to me? And maybe some of you can relate to those things. I can imagine arguing with God, being angry. But instead, Joseph humbly shows a steadfast patience and faithfulness. Well, if we're here, he thinks, let's make the best of it. The phrasing's clear. Joseph faithfully follows God, and as a result, it says everything that he did prospers. The Bible's clear. He does not prosper. The things that he does prospers. And so he, people take notice. We're going to end this, our story of Joseph today in this space. We'll continue this story next week, and we'll see what happens for him there. But right now, Joseph is sitting in jail, serving a prison guard, assuming that his life is over, wrestling with what it means to be humbled into that space and patiently and faithfully following God. It's not the, our favorite place to rest for a whole week, but I think it's relatable to a lot of us. Many of us in our faith lives assume it works like a made-for-TV Christian movie. Now, I've ranted about those a little bit too much from up here, but they bother me. Some of them do. Some of them are okay. Some of them are awful. There was a trope for a while inside of Christian movies that assumed that your life is terrible, you meet Jesus, and now everything's great. Almost fell off the stage. There was a trope that went through those, 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 those movies a lot. You, your life is terrible, you meet Jesus, now everything's great. The fact of the matter is, though, that more of us probably have experiences similar to Joseph than we do to those movies, right? We're in a season of baptism. We talked about where, where you may be sitting here thinking it's, that it might be time to make a decision to start following God. It's interesting... Uh, as, as we talk about baptism, how often I have conversations with people who say, hey, when I got baptized, I thought it was going to be up and to the right, that I was going to continue to grow in my relationship with God, continue to find the flourishing that he promises. But, let's say they're 10 years past, they'll go, but there have been times where I feel like I went backwards. Or maybe they're in a time in that moment in which God feels distant or far away or that they, they don't feel like they have their rhythm. That tends to be more of our experiences, doesn't it? The fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't promise us that after we meet Jesus, everything is just going to be beautiful and easy 
Actually, it promises the opposite. That even after we meet Jesus, we're going to still have times in which we've got to try to figure out how to do this thing. Times in which people are actually going to work against us or oppress us or, or, or times where we're going to have to work through our own brokenness. Times where even if we've done the right thing, like Joseph does here, we may not experience the outcomes that we were hoping for. It's really just important that we acknowledge that as real. It's in the pages of Scripture themselves that, 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 that even though God is good and desires what's best for us, we live in a world in which things are still broken, in which people lie and cheat, in which people hurt us even if we don't deserve it. And maybe you've experienced some of those things. We're going to leave Joseph in jail for now, but I don't want to leave us there for this morning. It is true that in your life, even if you are following God, you're still going to experience some of this wrestling and struggle. We all have. But I do want us to pay attention to what happens to Joseph in those spaces. Both when he first moves into the Egyptian's house, into Potiphar's house, it says that God is with him. That the things he's able to do prosper in those spaces. He's able to experience the presence of God in a way that's meaningful and significant. And actually, as we'll see throughout his story, starts to shape his character as well. Joseph ends this experience as a better, fuller person than when he started it. We saw then he mo he's moved into jail, which is clearly not the thing that he was hoping would happen. And once again, he faithfully follows God in the midst of that and will grow as a result of that too. If your faith journey is about following Jesus for that easy, quick fix, now, let me be clear, I do believe miracles exist and happen, and sometimes they are quick fixes. But those tend to be the exception, not the norm. Far more often, we, we, come to, we, uh, we, we don't experience that quick fix and instead are required to live a life of long obedience in the same direction. A life of sometimes two steps forward and one step back because of the brokenness in the world around us. A life in which we have to trust that even if the situation doesn't go the way we hope it will, God's still with us and will use those broken pieces to produce something beautiful. In the book of Romans, I think there's another misunderstood verse that says, uh, God will work all things for the good of those who trust in him. Often we love to use that as, as, as an argument for everything happens for a reason, which I don't think that's what that's saying at all. I actually think what that passage is suggesting is that you're going to experience brokenness in the world similar to what Joseph had. It will be painful, it will be hard, and yet God won't let it be wasted. He'll use it to build, up, build him up into something else. I opened this sermon by talking about the Netflix documentary, talking about Kirk Cousins, and, and, and in, again, he's a human and I'm not trying to elevate him higher than he is. I'm sure he has his flaws. But he's chosen to live a life of stability, of, 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 of this consistency, and as a result, it's produced things that he wouldn't see otherwise. God calls us into the same kind of thing. 
into a lifelong journey with him in which we have to wrestle through these hard things, in which we have to slowly grow and become better. We talk about it as next steps, taking one more step towards who God is. I think for a lot of us, that can be really frustrating because we think, hey, God, why don't you just fix it? Why don't you just take away all of this, this struggle and the hardship and just bring us to a place of fullness? We can become frustrated. We can become disillusioned. And yet, throughout the pages of Scripture, it says over and over and over again, that's how God works. I love that Seth today shared about his father. Because for me, to understand this particular space requires us to understand that we have a good father. I have two daughters that are both trying to learn how to live as adults in this world. If you've ever been around children, you know that there are times in which you want them to learn a lesson, not even necessarily a moral lesson, maybe just how to do something. And what that requires is for you to allow them to wrestle their way through it, right? There was a season in which my girls needed to learn how to tie their shoes, right? Now, for a while, I tied them for them, taught them how to do it, and then we moved into a space where I had to let them tie their own shoes which one, took me a lot longer, because they took them a lot longer, and two, was really frustrating sometimes, right? For them, from them and their scope that felt really painful, because they didn't know how to do it. And yet, as a father, in that case, knew that was what's best for them, that they could learn it, they could do it, could grow from it. Understanding, that our, that our, that as, understanding God as fa father is a similar kind of thing. There are times and seasons in which God says, in this broken world, I need you to learn how to deal with this situation. I need you to grow, grow in either whether, in Joseph's case, humility or patience. Maybe it's love or joy or kindness or any other fruits of the Spirit. And the only way we're going to get through that is to wrestle through it, is to struggle our way through it. We live in a world that wants the quick fix. We want instant gratification. If I do this, I better see results immediately. And often that can creep its way into our faith life. But what we see in today's story is that's not how God works. It's far more often a slow burn in which we're going to learn things along the way. We're in the season of baptism. Baptism isn't a season in which we say you've achieved everything that you that you. Uh, can ever possibly achieve in your faith. It's exactly the opposite. It's saying, I trust that God is a good father and that regardless of where my life goes from here, he'll walk with me through it. That when I mess up or when things happen to me because other people mess up, God will be there with me and redirect me back towards the flourishing life he desires. That maybe even if I don't prosper, the kingdom might because I allow God to work through me. That is not an American narrative on things. Again, we want instant gratification, but it is how God invites us into our faith lives as this slow, progressive journey towards a deeper and deeper relationship with our good Father who will continually lead us and guide us to become better, fuller, wholer people to continue to bring the, heaven, bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. If you're here this morning and you're, and you're, 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 that 
that sounds like something you'd be willing or, would, or desiring to, to jump on board with, I would encourage you, like I mentioned earlier, to join us in the back where we're talking about what baptism might looks like, look like. Again, it's not a declaration you've got it all figured out. It's a declaration that we trust that God is our good Father and that He does desire the best for us. And we want to mark that so each day we can take another step in that direction. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize that this world is a messed up place. That so often, even if we try to do things the right way, we run into the fact that other people might not. That there's brokenness and pain and hurt, and sometimes we experience the consequences of that, even if it wasn't our fault. God, we pray for eyes that can see you in the midst of that journey. In the spaces in which we realize that it's, 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 it's going to be a long, hard slog, that we can feel your presence with us. Give us the hope that you work out all things for the good of those who trust in him. That none of our struggling or pain or brokenness is wasted. It doesn't make it easier to live with sometimes, but it, does it, make it doesn't make it useless. May we all be people of consistency and faithfulness so we can follow you even when things are tough. So we can grow into the kinds of people you desire us to be. Amen.